My name's Phil Thornton. I, uh, my wife Jan is sitting back there in the green. Our on-field missionary service uh, in our younger days was in Colombia, South America. Uh, for 27 years, I developed and taught the missions program at Asbury University. Since retiring, and my wife says we are now flunking retirement. Uh, since she retired from 27 years in education also. We have been working with a small organization known as Global Impact Mission. Our special focus has been well, the world of oral communicators, those folks which either cannot read, do not understand what they read, or simply prefer oral communication to written communication, and that takes in about 80% of the world. And what we have learned and are learning more and more is that they think differently, they act differently, they interact differently, and they have different worldviews, which is one of the things that we want to talk about today. Starting out up here is the whole uh, concept of world religions, and obviously I do not have all of them. Find a light switch back there, somebody's coming on and Let's get in the dark here. You doing good? Good. Keep. There we go. Now we're better. <clears throat> in the whole midst of this <clears throat> realm of world religions, uh, all of them have something in common. Namely, they will speak to the issue of what comes after death, the life after death. One of the things that you will find is this whole issue of animism permeates all of the other religions, yes, even including Christianity. I can give you some examples of that later on, but we want to kind of focus in on what we call the animistic world, the animistic worldview. Let me see if I can give you some introduction to that, give you a chance to throw some questions our way and get some discussion. Just to get us started into the process, let me give you just kind of a brief overview here because I think that it's important to have this concept when you think of working among animistic peoples or people of any religion. There are two approaches when we start comparing religions. There is the approach that asks the question, what do you believe? What does your religion believe? And there is the approach that will ask, what does your religion do for you? From our Western theological Christianity background, our focus tends to be on what you believe. Tell me what you believe, and at least I'll know which pigeonhole to put you into. Most of the rest of the world, and to a large extent even here in the United States, is less concerned about what you believe and more concerned about what your religion will do for me. It puts things down at a basic level. If your religion will function better than the one I have, I'm interested in listening to you. Now that's going to become very important in the world of animism. Just to give you a quick glance, when I start talking about functions of religion, I'm talking about things such as a religion, a worldview gives some kind of orderly model of the universe. It tells me why I'm here. It tells me where I'm going. 
in life. It tells me about human behavior, what is right and what is wrong. It gives me a means of dealing with crisis. That is one of the basic functions of every religion. How will it help me deal with a crisis event? It always helps me explain that which is unexplainable, and in so doing, it reduces anxiety. None of us live with anxiety real easily. So the Motolone Indian in northern Columbia is going along the trail, and he finds one of his Motolone Indian braves laying there. He's dead. You and I might say, well, let's take a look at this. He probably had a heart attack. The Motolone Indian might say, you know, you see that rock over there? The spirits came out of the rock, grabbed him by the throat, choked him to death, and that's the reason he's dead. I won't even begin to argue with you on who's right and who's wrong on that one. Because you get into some strange conversations here. Transfers responsibility to the supernatural as you consider the Lord would the Lord want me in missionary service or something like that. One of the places that you and I come to in life is, well, if I'm going to take this step, it doesn't work out, at least I can blame God. Because he told me to do that. Now, I don't mean that in any kind of condescending way. One of the basic functions of religion is to say, My religion, my God, my gods gave me that kind of instruction. And, of course, aids in in, uh, the whole area of education. When you look at animism or when you look at any other religion, there are four basic components that you're going to have to find. Now, these become significant in delivering medicine, in delivering the gospel, in doing anything that you want to do. The bottom premises of my whole argument with you is if you do not know, if you do not understand some of the context, some of what they believe and why they believe, you're going to be, it's going to be very difficult to effectively do anything, anything with them, whether it be medicine, gospel, or anything else. So our taking that step back, let's say, all right, how are we going to understand? First, we've got to figure out what their belief system is. What do they believe and why do they believe it? Second, they're going to be filled with religious symbols. Every religion, animism including, is going to have some religious symbols involved. Always good to know what they are because it is not good to do that which is wrong with a religious symbol simply because you did not know that it was a religious symbol that had meaning to those folks. Of course, there are religious leaders. Every religion will have religious leaders in some form or fashion, including animism. It's always well to know who those leaders are, to figure out how they get their positions, what their actual power is, because some way or some form you're going to have to cross paths with them and work with them or speak against them. And, of course, there are rituals and ceremonies. That is kind of a general background, a general framework for talking about any religion. Now let's jump down into this whole worldview of animism. In animism, one of the basics you have is that there is a concept of a supreme God, usually. Perhaps not always. But there will be some concept that somewhere out there at some point there is some kind of supreme being that you and I might call God. The problem is that contact with that supreme being has been lost in some form or fashion. Therefore, animists will turn to a second level and it is at this level that they have a constant interaction on a daily basis. Those spirits may be what we call totemic spirits. 
In other words, there there a group of people have would have a totem, which may be an animal, it might be a plant. Normally, you do not touch, you do not deal with, you certainly do not eat, except under special circumstances. Your totem, because there is supposed power in that totem. There are territorial spirits. Particular areas in any given group, in any given area of the world, which is supposedly inhabited by certain spirits. And if you go into that area, you must be conscious of and deal with or avoid dealing with the spirits that inhabit that world. You have ancestral spirits that are very common among animistic people. So you have to be conscious that people that you are dealing with at a spiritual level or a medical level are thinking not only in terms of the living, but they're thinking in terms of the spirits of those forefathers that have gone before them. You have spirits that inhabit all of nature, the rocks, the trees, the skies. That, in essence, is animism at the heart of the matter. Then an interesting one comes up, and that is in most animistic circles, you will also find this thing that we call spirit possession. It becomes very real, and it is something that in the medical profession you have to figure out as a first step, am I dealing with a spiritual issue or am I dealing with a physical issue? First week that Jan and I were in Bogota in Colombia, new missionaries, we had the first worldwide conference on witchcraft. We brought in witches and warlocks from all over the world. No, they did not come in our invitation, but they were there. It was an interesting week. It was a week, I must say, that the church was really not that well prepared to deal with. Another issue within this framework or worldview of animism, you've got now God, spirit world, constantly interacting with that spirit world, is the whole issue of ethics. When you turn to an ethical system in terms of how we might express it, theological sins, sins against God, sociological sins, sins against my fellow human beings. Most animistic people, while they may be concerned about Offending that spirit world, what they are greatly concerned about is this sociological sin. Have I done something against my group, my family, some other person? Because even then, as you you interact with that person, if they feel that they have offended in some way somebody, somebody's family, then the retribution may in fact come back through that spirit world. 
And that's where we get this whole idea of uh, spells being put upon people and that kind of thing. That, again, doctors face fairly uh, regularly in some parts of the world. Ethical standards then are kept in order to be safe rather than to be moral. Now grasp that a little bit. Yes, there are ethical standards in an animistic worldview, but they are kept primarily in order to keep the spirit world off of my back. Not that I'm going to be right or righteous before a holy God. Then you have religious activities. So we've come through a belief system. We're, we're dropping down through the whole process and we said every religion, including animism, is going to have a whole set of religious activities. Animism has a series generally built around calendar rituals. Certain times of the year you do certain things. Don't be surprised. In terms of your work, again, be it spiritual or medical, if they come to you and don't come to you at certain times of the year. Because if that takes them away from the crops, if it takes them away from the harvest, if something else is religiously going on in the village, they may or may not turn to you at that point. There are also rituals for crisis. As we said, all religions will have it. If there is a crisis event, and inevitably there will be, there will be some kind of ritual or set of rituals that these people will turn to in order to deal with that crisis event. There are some kind of prayer. might look a little strange, but there was some attempt to communicate with that spiritual world. Divination, the idea of telling the future, figuring it out, and the one with it will affect medical people probably more than any other is what we call rites of passage. Rites of passage is that idea of moving from one stage of life to another stage. This is very important, particularly significant. Let me let you watch this. We'll talk about it a little bit. The Thunani tribes people, known for their nomadic ways and for some of the world's more painful rites of passage. In a remote region of northern Benin, West Africa, Bokate prepares for his initiation ritual with the help of his older brother. Clans will gather from 50 miles around to see if he is braver than his opponent in a violent, whipping match. If I lose, I will be shamed. Because everyone from all of the different clans will be watching. Back at the village, the boys enlist their father's aid in choosing a branch that will inflict the most painful blow. Their father sharpens the stick so it will break the opponent's skin. Finally, it's time to head off to battle. Bapate is excited, in spite of the bloody test that awaits him. Meanwhile... A young Fulani woman is undergoing her own rite of passage into adulthood. Today, Made will receive a full set of traditional facial tattoos and become a woman. Made's tattoos will be done by a local artist, Gokure. He readies the needles he will use to make thousands of tiny pricks in Made's face. The hours-long ritual will test the girl's bravery 
If she cries or shows pain, then she will be shamed, and the tattooing may be delayed until she is older. Before inscribing the painful tattoo, Gokure paints elaborate designs. Each carries a special meaning for the Fulani. Eyes on her temples will allow Made to keep watch on her husband at all times. Cow tracks symbolize prosperity. The beginning is the most painful. Blood begins to mix with the ink, but the artist continues. After more than three hours, the work is complete. According to Fulani tradition, Made is now a beautiful woman ready to consider marriage. Made has finished her initiation rite, but Vipate is about to face his own test. Vipate learns that his opponent will be a boy named Mati from a neighboring clan. First, Vipate will whip Mati three times, and then he will have to endure the same. Whoever hits the other the hardest and flinches the least when hit himself will be declared the winner. The crowd will determine who is bravest. Mati's clan celebrates his bravery by showering him with white talc powder and placing coins on his forehead as a congratulatory gesture. Now it is the Pati's turn to be beaten. when struck by his opponent's weaker blows, and he's won the match. Though Vapati's skin is broken, his spirit is not. It is burning me. It really hurts. But I am full of joy. I am very proud because I have won. Vapati has endured a pain. Now the young lady or the young boy shows up at your clinic because some of those wounds get infected. Now you're faced with somewhat of a dilemma. Certainly you can treat, but you might also be tempted to say, this is rather foolish, guys, hurting each other like this, but realizing that without some kind of ritual, the young lady cannot become, the girl cannot become a young lady and get married. The young boy cannot become a man. There has to be some kind of ritual. Now, the one thing that Jan and I learned, we have a 41-year-old daughter who is very autistic. And she used to have some strange habits, swinging coat hankers on her fingers and doing strange things with bags and plastic bags and stuff. Well, we'd always take, say, that's a little dangerous, Andrew. Better take that away from you. Great. 
She would always put something in its place. Anytime you take something away from a group of people like this, they will put something in its place if you and I do not put something in its place. Just as workable, just as meaningful. Because the rite of passage is that significant among animistic people. Then you have religious sites and religious objects. Certain people are taboo. The question becomes, if a person comes to you for medical treatment, well, let's phrase it a different. There's a person laying in the ditch who needs medical treatment, and nobody will help that person. And you say, why doesn't someone stop and help? Well, they're taboo. We cannot touch them. Are there certain foods that cannot be eaten? Might be great food, might be very healthy, but they are considered taboo. Therefore, they cannot be eaten. <coughs> are objects that would be considered taboo? You cannot touch them because they have certain powers inherent in them. Certain names. You say, well, i got to know their name in order to be able to deal with them. Well, you may or may not be able to get their name at least in the early state, because knowing their name implies that you have power over them. So keep in mind this whole idea of religious sites and religious objects. Now let's hit at the core of the, the whole process here. When we speak of the animistic worldview, and I'm making very little, if any, distinction between religion and worldview here because they are so very intertwined. Different, but highly intertwined. The border between the natural and the supernatural is blurred. <coughs> now by that I mean there's no particular places or nothing is particularly determined to be sacred and other places secular. Where I taught for all those years at Asbury University, if you talk to students, wasn't any problem. They knew the chapel was sacred, the grill was secular. <coughs> you know, you go on campus, most campuses are like that. That distinction that you and I have of the sacred and the secular is blurred, and it, the lines are very difficult to follow in the world of animism. <coughs> all of the world, all of nature is inhabited by spirits. People are inhabited by spirits, rocks, trees, everything. There is a plethora of spirits with which you must deal every day. Some good, some bad, depends on who controls them. How do I control that spirit world? How do I manipulate it? By the use of magic. Now this becomes the essence of the worldview of animism. A whole world filled with spirits. The only way that I can deal with that spirit world is if I have the magic or if I can find somebody with the magic that can control that spirit world and guide it for my benefit as opposed to its harming me. Now you put that again into the context of medical services. Someone shows up at your doorstep and you talk with them long enough and you find out, well, why are you sick? Well, I'm sick because somebody put a spell on me. Now, I don't know when the last time in med school or anything they talked about, you know, here's how you treat people with spells. 
101. And you say, well, that is not real. It's just what they have going on in their mind. Don't go there too quickly. Because in the world of animism, these kinds of, the ability to control other people through this spirit world becomes very real. We'll talk a little bit more later. How do I exercise control over that spirit world then if I am in that world of animism? There are three ways. The first is I know the right words. The prayers, the chants, the formulas. I have the power words which will give me control over that spirit world. I have certain objects. We speak of them frequently as charms or fetishes. If I have that object, if I have that fetish, it gives me the power to control, to manipulate that spirit world. And then, of course, there are power people. These are people that are recognized within the context of any given situation, community. They have certain powers in order to control, manipulate, through some form or fashion, that spirit world. In the coastal Mexican city of Canemato, indigenous traditions have mixed with Catholicism to create a unique brand of spirituality that sometimes puts spells ahead of crucifixes. People patronize brujos or witches like Julia Garcia to remedy physical or emotional pain. I cure many spiritual, even physical things. If you have a cold, I can take care of it. If you have a bad hip, I bandage it. This young lady suffers from headaches and Julia treats her by performing a cleansing ceremony, or limpia. In the tradition of ancient folk healers, she may also prescribe special teas or potions that contain medicinal herbs like garlic, eucalyptus, and rosemary. The methods employed are all white magic, or good things. Sigrid Dito is an expert on Mexican culture who sees magic as integral to the social fabric. Now, magical thinking is a unique human feature, and magical practices are probably as old as mankind itself. They always relate to basic human questions concerned about uh, a person's well-being, physical and spiritual well-being, of course, as well as uh, to his awareness of his own finiteness. But there is more to the story of brujeria than Julia's healing with white magic. When settling a score or getting back at someone, you may need to harness the power of the dark side, black magic. Satan, emperor of the infernal stars, Astarot, Beelzebub, infernal spirits, at this moment I ask for your presence and intervention. Depending on the work to be done, one or another magic is used. If there is a sentimental problem, then red magic is used. If there is a problem with a neighbor, black magic is more likely to be used. To get rid of someone who is causing harm, we definitely use black magic. In black magic, the ritual climax usually involves a sacrifice. 
In order to complete the work the client asked for, at that moment, an offering of love must be made. At that moment, all beings, up to the highest authority, are present. We can't see them, but we can feel it in the body, the healer and the patient alike. To outsiders, the work of Karemako's brujos may seem like superstitious nonsense. But as long as members of the community continue to find benefit in the age-old tradition, the brujos will practice their white and black magic. Let's take a look at some of the implications for either doing medicine or presenting the gospel in this context. And then let me, again, just in a broad stroke. In this world of animism, the whole world and everything in it is occupied by spirits. Human beings interact with those spirits because they do not have any action with any kind of supreme being. That has been lost, if it ever existed. In interacting with that spirit world, the normal way within the context of animism is through magic. And if your magic is stronger than my magic, you're going to win. If my magic is stronger than your magic, I'm going to win. So it places the whole context almost as a battleground of who has the greater control over this spirit world. Now, into that context, we come to do some medicine. There are three things that are going to take place in this encounter between you and an animistic. First is a belief encounter. Belief encounter in this system. What do they believe about the whole existence, their existence? What do they believe about their sickness, their illness? What do they believe about the spirit world? What do they believe about themselves? And what do they believe about you? And somewhere in the midst of that, you're probably going to have an encounter where your belief is obviously different from their belief. You're going to have a commitment encounter. This is obviously true when it comes to the gospel because you're asking them to change commitments. But I suspect it's going to be similarly true in terms of medical services. Because I don't know about you, but when I go see my doctor, there's a certain commitment that I have to listen to him. You know, he can say, take this medicine, and I better take the medicine, or it's not going to be a pleasant experience the next time I go to him. In other words, I make a commitment because of who he is and what I've asked him to do. There's also a power encounter. Now, the power encounter jumps back into that spirit world. And it is likely that in the process of dealing with the medical services, of dealing with the spiritual issues, somewhere in the mix of that, fairly quickly, spiritual issues will arise in terms of that spirit world that is operating in them and in their context. Where you have to step outside that medical world and begin to deal with that spiritual world where is an encounter between the Holy Spirit, between Christ and the spirits in which they are involved. 
And without that encounter, it is not likely that the whole process of healing will take place. Ten key questions. And we're just going to take time to talk. In dealing, I do some teaching with Christian Medical and Dental Association with folks that come through. And as I listened and talked with those folks, certain questions kept arising in my own mind that I feel like need to be answered, whether you're talking long-term service or short-term medical service. These are some of the issues that arise in that animistic context, in fact, in any other context. See what you think. First, how in the world do I get an accurate diagnosis with a patient? You ask them, good luck. Are you asking the right person? Well, it's the lady that's sitting here. Yes, it's the lady that's sitting here, but the person that answered the question is her husband standing right behind her. And she's not going to answer anything until he answers or her mother or whatever the case may be. I ask, what is hurting or what, what's the problem? And they start into a lengthy story. And you say, because you know you've only got five minutes with them. <laughs> One of my pet peeves. <laughs> no, I need to know what is wrong. Now, I, I, let me give you an illustration outside of medicine. We were in India. I was working with a group of pastors, and a pastor stood up, and he was answering some questions, making a little presentation. I, that was supposed to answer a question anyway. And he started in telling his story and story, and I began to fidget, and the guy that was translating for me finally stood up, put his hand on his shoulder, said, no, tell me exactly, you know, give me the summary. What is it? He turned and smiled, turned back, and went right on with his story. <laughs> because he cannot decontextualize those issues from that story. So the whole issue is, am I getting an accurate diagnosis here? What do I need to do? How much time? With whom? How do I go about getting that accurate diagnosis? How do I explain the perimeters, the limits of my service? In other words, what do you do when the patient comes to you and they've got high blood pressure and those medicines have to be monitored or something like that, and they cannot be monitored, particularly prevalent among short-term missions? Do you give them out? Do you withhold them? Or where you can say, look, I have the antibiotic here, but it's probably going to take two sessions of this antibiotic to cure you. I've got one, and you don't have the money to get two. Do you withhold the one? How do I explain to this person what I can do and what I really can't do such that they will accept it and understand it and it does not have long-term effects on my relationship with them or with the people? How do I find out or understand their view of sickness and their view of medicine? In other words, what causes sickness and how is cure brought about? Most of us, you know, 
A sickness is caused by germs, or whatever the case may be. But then you're sitting there with the patient, and the sickness may or may not be caused by germs, but you got that whole spiritual thing going on over here. At least in their mind, that's what they see the problem to be. And in fact, it may be the problem. Uh, some of you know Dan Tolan. Dan was giving an illustration when we were working at CMD. He said a man came to him. He says, I can't, uh, I can't swallow. If you can't swallow, you can't eat. So they went through the whole process of all of those, you know, exams, swallowing all that bad tasting stuff that you have to do and take a picture. Wasn't anything wrong with the guy at all, physically. Came back, continued the conversation. The fellow said, yes, I know. He says, I can't swallow because I have a curse upon me. Well, then let's talk about that. Let's... uh, I think we can deal with this curse. He says, no, you can't take the curse off of me because if it goes off of me, it will go on to my wife and my children. And the man died. Would have it gone to his wife and children? How do I communicate bad news and good news? Particularly how do I communicate bad news? There is a process, there is a correct way to communicate things that are good and things that are bad in all cultural contexts. If it's going to be accepted, understood, then I need to know what that process is. How do I address the systemic, the chronic problems, need for clean water, sanitation, elimination of bad health practices? Uh, again, one of the big issues that short-term missions face, we were two times in a, a place in Peru out in the jungle areas, made the decision there really wasn't a big reason to take a medical team back in there anymore. They didn't have sanitation. They didn't have clean water. What we did lasted about two weeks until those other issues were addressed. <coughs> How do I explain why I must prioritize whom I see? Do you see the one that you have the better chance of healing first, or do you see the one that's the most sick first? The person that's sitting out here waiting to see you that you surmise is going to die anyway, and the person sitting beside them that has a possibility of being cured, do you move them in front? Or better still, if the political official of the village comes up and here's a line long out there and they come to the front of the line. And you and I say, everybody in this situation waits their turn. Not in that context. So how do I understand this whole situation of whom I see and why, who's first, who's second, so forth? How do I help my patients and particularly my coworkers? The key nationals with whom I work understand my Western way of thinking. Realizing Western medical personnel will not be able to shed their culture entirely. That's not going to happen with me. It's not going to happen with you. But you are a subculture. An interesting one at that. For those of us that stand outside the medical world. 
you are taught certain ways of thinking, you are taught certain ways of acting, you develop certain uh, a form of being. And that has been trained highly in a Western context. Then you change context. Now, how do you explain to your co-workers? Or how do you change? And how do you understand what's different? Let me give you an illustration on that one. We were in a situation where a short-term team moved into a clinic that had been set up. Long-term existed. Our medical doctors came in. We rearranged some of the offices put some folks out front because there were hundreds of people to be seen. And so first night after clinic, we're sitting around talking. Some of the folks were lamenting, I just can't get the national workers to stick around and help me. No surprise. We've moved in. We've changed everything that they know, and we've relegated them to gophers. Go get this and go get that. And we're surprised that they're not all that anxious to work with us. But you see, we brought all that technology and knowledge. And I cannot help but wonder the damage that we did as well as the good that we did while we were there that week. How do I ensure that my medical, short and long term, interfaces with a larger community? Is it just standing alone out here or does it become a vital part and greeted in that whole community process how do i explain the real purpose of my medical ministry is in is not entirely physical understanding the spiritual dimension how do i connect with and communicate with local health care providers See, one of the big issues that we have, again, particularly with short-term missions, is when we come in and we'll set up a clinic or something like that, we bring the, 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 the meds with us. What do we do to the local pharmacist that's just down the corner? We were in Nicaragua. We set a clinic up in a, in a church. It was right after... Uh, Oh, when the volcano filled up with water and spilled over. This is years ago. And they had to displace a large number of people. We had a doctor. We had a nurse. And we had dentists. And we were set up in the church just trying to help people out. Second day we're there, a physician, a Nicaraguan physician, came. I said, and I met him. I said, I am so glad you're here. Really appreciate your helping us. Come come right up on the stage with you where we had the little medical part set and I got the chair for you or anything. He says, people won't see me. I said, oh, yeah, they'll see you, you know. Brought him up there and I sat him down. And so you can imagine you have doctor, nurse, physician, who probably knew a whole lot more about what was going on than we did. And I watched people in line try to figure out when the next person was coming up and go back in line so that they would see our people and not the local physician. He did not come back a third day. How do we interface with that local medical service providers, which doctors sometime, if you will, who may or may not be bad, by the way, because sometimes they do some good things as well as some bad things. 
stop. Questions. You give me some some questions, talk, feedback. Yes, sir. Yes, I think maybe the only way. Now, what you may find out, I always laugh at, I heard an illustration in India. This was not a medical person, but a missionary. They carried him out to a village. Village elders met him, said, I want you to come to my house. My water buffalo is sick. You pray over my water buffalo. If my water buffalo gets well, we'll all become Christians. I don't know when the last time you played over a water buffalo, but... (laughs) If if your God is greater than my God, I want to hear about him. That's that functional approach. Well, two two responses there. First, I don't want to, I started to say belittle. That may not be the word, that whole response. It is a genuine response. It's not trickery or anything like that. It's like, you know, man, show me your God. Now, beyond that, obviously, there are certain, there's a lot more to the gospel than just the power dimension of it. But that's a starting point. And I guess what my argument would be, whatever religion we're in or wherever we're ministering, there is a starting point. And I may not like the starting point. I may want to start somewhere else. But if i got to start where they are, all learning takes place from the known to the unknown. So you start with what they know. What else? Carefully. <laughs> I think in deter first off, let me back up a said, how do you even know? This is where we I really believe we get into those whole spiritual gift realms, discernment. When the when the spirit speaks to your spirit saying there's more going on here than just the physical. And at that point, in some kind of culturally appropriate way, there's a time to broach that subject. In a certain sense, I think among animistic people frequently, we don't like to go out on a limb, but we go out on a limb. Say, look, I believe God can release you from this. Now you say, well, if I pray for this guy and it doesn't happen... (laughs) That's the limb. <laughs> but I think sometimes we just got to, as long as they're willing, go out there with them. I want to respond to her question. Please. Please. I think we just need to read the gospel and see what Jesus did. Amen. Thank you, sister. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Be careful now. She's going to go to preaching on you over there now. <laughs> Billy, you've got to have all kinds of experiences here on this. Would you like to share one? talking about dealing with that spiritual when when the problem is in that realm of the demonic and the spirit how does a medical doctor go about responding to that situation my husband should be here (laughs) (laughs) because he he was visiting with a patient in an island a Muslim island on the coast of Kenya he was in the home and um, can you hear her Just stand up. Get close to this mic. When my husband was visiting with a a Muslim family in the island of Lamu off the coast of Kenya, which is uh, very Muslim, he was with uh, a group of Gujarati Indians, actually, who lived on that island. And he he said, well, well, who is she talking to? Because this old lady in the room was just talking on and on and on while they were visiting. Who is she talking to? Well, she's talking to Satan. Well, he, he had never heard that before. <laughs> that was kind of astounding. And he didn't know what to do other than pray with the family. And another thing they did on that island was... Um, they had a fear of the owl because they felt that the owl, owl would come and take away their their babies. Their kids would die. And so they had a great fear of owls. So that, you a little taboo that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sure others of you have had that kind of experience. Yes, ma'am. Right behind you there, and then we'll come back. I would not want you to think there's a real simple, easy answer to your question. I don't have a pat formula, you know, do X, do Y, and this is the way. I do think this, uh, and I'll share about to the end here uh, a couple of articles that are up on a website. I believe that the Lord can give us some insight into those situations. And take us beyond our knowledge and take us beyond our abilities, both in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. And I think if you talk to any of the doctors that have worked on the mission fields of the world, when they start cutting, I know David Jan's brother, Dave Stevens, tells the story many times. You know, he picked up a knife and he's got his textbooks over here. And he said, because I never did this before, where do I cut? 
At that point, the Lord steps in in some interesting, miraculous ways. Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to know you had said that there's a way that animism can permeate Christianity as well. Do you elaborate on that? I was wondering if anybody... I want to be careful there now. So... Temper what I say. They tell me that in religious book, in Christian bookstores, the number one selling items are not Christian books, but jewelry. Religious jewelry. Anything wrong with that? Don't misunderstand me at all. One example, I had a good friend back when I was in high school. was on his way back to the University of Texas where he was going to college. Hit a train. Threw him through the windshield back onto the car. And he lived through that. And the conversation that you heard, he, he had had a real life-changing experience with the Lord. And what people were talking about, and again, I don't mean to be little, is he had his Bible laying right there beside him. Great. There is just that tendency in all of us to become more concrete. And I don't mean that is bad. I mean there's just a temptation, I think, that we find in all of us. Well, my time's just about up here. Let me throw one more thing up here. Continuing the conversation, if you, if you want to read a few more things in this area of of medicine and all, each time I've come away from the CMDA conferences, I sit down and I write something out that does nothing more than express my questions as much as anything and my reflections. Those are I've put up on a blog site, and so they're open. It's called Open Letter to Medical Missionaries or something, one, two, three. I'm not sure how many are up there. Or you can send me an email or give me a phone call or whatever. <laughs> And we can continue this conversation because I have so much more to learn than I know. There is some material laying back here on the back. What I am doing now in the last uh, few years of my life, within this context of animism, there's a whole world that we call oral learners, orality, where people either do not know how to read, do not understand what they read, or simply prefer written uh, oral communication over written communication, which is one of those other things when you hand people, you know, the prescription and it's written out. Or even if you go over it with them orally and, you know, take this, 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 and this, this in the morning, this in the evening, and I'm standing there. No way on God's green earth are they going to remember that. And by the way, they're probably going to share it with the rest of the family when they get home. Which scares any doctor to death. <laughs> but in this whole area of how to communicate with people who are basically oral learners, there's some material back there that's, uh, that tells you a little bit about what, some of that work in that. Thank you. Find me. Yes. Would you recommend some further reading books, perhaps, on, uh, on this whole area? Let me let the rest of you go and let me give it a think and I will, yeah, uh.